Hi folks, this is Kean, and you're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, the Irish 14 show that's critical but not cynical. You find me once again out voyaging and not at the cabin in the woods where I usually record. That's because I'm out looking for Neolithic monuments. I'm actually standing on top of a hill fort somewhere in the east part of the country, southeast to be precise. I'm looking out on four concentric stone walls. And um, the sun has come out finally and uh, is showing kind of a early winter landscape and it is all looking very good. There's still a slightly worrying amount of leaves and colour still on the trees. A little bit late in the season for that. Probably not great reasons for it, but it does add a touch of colour to the proceedings. So as I am surrounded by Bronze Age monuments, I will crack my beer for this episode. It is from Treaty City Brewing. Uh, who, of course, operate out of Limerick City. And I've got an Invasion IPA. And let's see what it says here. A massive hop invasion from the first sip, bursting with hop aromas ranging from floral pine to grapefruit and lime from the hops added in both the kettle and the fermenter while brewing this beer. Vibrant and hoppy. So I've brought this all the way from the guest house where I'm staying. And yeah, a little, little bit more flowery than I like. Um, I'm more of an old-fashioned bitter guy. I learned to drink my ale when West Coast things were the fashion. Now it seems to be kind of East Coast things. Not that I am any kind of beer expert. Anyway, you've not come for that. Well, you've come for a bit of that, but mostly you've come for the weird stuff. So this episode um, will be my interview with Justin Mullis. Very, very pleased to have him on the show. A tremendously knowledgeable fellow. And we're talking about um, what he calls fairy euhemerism which is something I would have called the Turanian race theory in previous episodes, though I, I think I do prefer this new term, fairy euhemerism. Don't worry, we're going to explain what all those terms mean and where they come from in the episode itself. For now, suffice it to say, this is what seems at first to be a rather weird and obscure theory, the idea that um, in parts of Europe and specifically the British Isles, there was a race predating the Celts who were this kind of not entirely human, short, squat, hairy race of beings and that perhaps um, some of them survived into antiquity or even closer to the present. And like I say, it sounds odd, sounds obscure. At first you hear it and you think, that's weird. Never come across that anywhere before. And then, well, as I think we'll make clear in the interview, it's actually something which shows up all over the place in both fiction, weird fiction, and um, in, in ideas about the paranormal and alternate history and, and stuff like that. So hopefully you enjoy this one. As always, you can say hi over at Twitter, where I'm at Strange Ireland, or Instagram, where I am wide underscore Atlantic underscore weird. And uh, yeah, let's just, uh, I'm going to sit my can here, sit on this prehistoric wall, and uh, hopefully you'll enjoy this interview. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Uh, so my name is Justin Mullis. I am a PhD candidate at uh, Bowling Green State University, uh, which is located in Bowling Green, Ohio, in the United States. Um, my uh, my my doctoral work is in the field of American cultural studies, um, but my background is in religious studies. That's what both my um, uh, bachelor's degree and my master's degree is in. Uh, and uh, you know, I originally, you know, I I got. 
Um, my academic trajectory has been I mean, probably a little unusual. You know, I, I've always been interested in in monsters and Fortean phenomena, and I you know, wanted uh, an outlet to kind of research and, and study that kind of stuff. Um, and I wasn't quite sure which direction to go in. And then when I was, you know, pretty much fresh out of high school, I read a book by uh, scholar Timothy K. Beale called Religion and Its Monsters that convinced me that religious studies was the direction to go in. Uh, and so I ended up following that pursuit, but then, uh, you know, with, with a plan to kind of focus on sort of traditional sort of, you know, biblical uh, textual criticism, you know, with an interest in, in sort of, uh, you know, angelology and demonology as, as conveyed in biblical texts and the Apocrypha and that sort of thing. But about halfway through my undergraduate work, um, I took a class where, where we had to read this book uh, called From Angels to Aliens by Lynn Schofield Clark. And, and that, in addition to Beale, was another big turning point for me because that book was about Clark had done research in the 90s, you know, so in the, in the United States in the 90s, I'm not sure how it was in uh, in Europe and, and in uh, the in uh, the United Kingdom. But in, in the 90s in the U.S., we experienced a huge uptick in the number of people who profess to believe in angels. And Clark was interested in this. And she went out to do a kind of ethnographic survey. And she was expecting to find that this um, rise in a belief in angels was related to a kind of upswelling in, in uh, Christian religiosity. And instead of what she found was that it seemed to be more connected to the fact that the television show Touched by an Angel was really, really popular. And so this uh, in, influenced the direction of her work. And she ended up writing this book about how popular television shows like Touched by an Angel or The X-Files influence sort of paranormal belief in people. And I found this uh, really interesting. And that sort of shifted the direction of, of my research and my interests where I became, you know, fascinated in, you know, how there were, um, you know, uh, esoteric religious groups that were drawing on the works of writers uh, like H.P. Lovecraft, or how, you know, the, the subject that we're going to be talking a lot about today, you know, Arthur, Arthur Macon, um, really influ you know wrote this this story the bowmen right that ended up becoming this uh, thing of the angels of mon during the first world war which i know you've talked about in previous episodes where there were you know soldiers coming back from the front of the first world war claiming that they'd seen these angels even though the source for this was an entirely um fictional account um but you know those those sorts of interests you know i wrote both my my undergraduate uh, thesis, which has been published, really dealt with Lovecraft. And then I kind of built on this work in a more theoretical way for my master's thesis. But really after that, I knew that I needed to kind of branch out from religious studies because my work, you know, while still in that realm, no longer I felt was being as serviced as it could be um, by that by that discipline. And so I, I eventually ended up in American cultural studies because at its root, American cultural studies is a kind of hybrid of English and history. Um, it was started uh, by uh, these guys, Perry Miller and Leo Marx, sort of uh, with, you know, they, these were, these were uh, scholars who were interested in looking at foundational American authors like Herman Melville and Edgar Allan Poe and Nathaniel Hawthorne, but instead of asking sort of standard 
questions about you know their form and style uh, that you know your your sort of English professors would ask. They wanted to ask historical questions about what were the his, what was the historical reality at the time that were influencing these writers to write the fiction that they were doing, um, which has become a big part of of my own work. Uh, you know, with both what we're going to talk about today, you know, me digging into where were writers like Arthur Mackin and, and H.P. Lovecraft and Robert Howard getting their ideas about, you know, uh, little people, about fairies. And it's it's influenced a lot of my other work as well. I'm I'm currently in the process. I've been doing a, a big research project over the last couple of years dealing with how the uh, the advent of Christianity in uh, Japan in the late um 1600s early 1700s influenced Japanese vampire fiction and um, my my doctoral work is actually a lot about um, cryptozoological ideas in early America and uh, and and I've written a previously written and published an article too about the interplay of cryptozoology and, and science fiction in general so that's that's kind of in broad strokes a lot of my work and and how I got there and, and the kind of stuff that I do. My goodness, there there is a lot there we could do episodes with. Um, but we're going to focus on something. We, we have to focus on something. This is a thing I've been looking to dive into, and I haven't had the right take on it, or I haven't had the right person lined up. And and hopefully, I'm, I'm delighted we're finally getting around to this. Um, this is about what I, I, I'm coming to learn is known as fairy euhemerism. And a chapter you've written called Fear, Fairies and Fossils. And this is in the book Arthur Mackin Critical Essays edited by Antonio Sana. And this is an idea, I suppose I had picked this up myself in, in weird fiction over the years. I'd noticed it in Lovecraft. I'd noticed it in Robert E. Howard. Um, and it didn't crystallize for me until just a few years ago. Um, I, on the blog, there's a blog called An Underwood Number 5. And he has an article called Conan and the Little People, Robert E. Howard and Lovecraft's Theory by Bobby Deary is, is the name here. So yeah, this... Um, um... Robert uh, Robert Deary is the author of that article. Yeah, so he's yes, a friend and, and colleague of mine. He's a great uh, Lovecraft and Howard scholar. He runs a uh, website called uh, Deep Cuts in a Lovecraftian Vein. So, and he's been, uh, yeah, he's he's shared a lot of uh, his research into this with me. And uh, I was I was very disappointed. You know, the the article that I wrote on this for the uh, book on on Arthur Mackin you know, was, it was originally much longer, but because of the nature of it being one essay in a collection, I had to cut so much. And unfortunately, um, my citations to Derry's article fell victim to the, the editorial knife. So, but he deserves a lot of credit. So. Yes. And so, so that same for me is, is where I got my, well, for me, that's where I got my introduction, I guess, to this idea, having picked it up, you know, without really realizing it. And now I see it everywhere. I see it in weird fiction and I see it in, as we get into what this really is, uh, for quite a while, it seemed like something that was fairly obscure to me, this kind of failed, forgotten, weird 19th century idea. And yet, the more I read about it, the more I see, you no, know, there is modern cryptozoology in this. There is Tolkien and Hobbits in this. There is Game of Thrones in this. And and this idea, as weird as it sounds, um, still has a lot of re relevance. So what is this strange idea that we're talking about? Yeah, so this is what I mean, you know, I I kind of, you know, part of part of my exposure to this idea, um, the way that I had become familiar with it was, you know, I've been reading 
Lovecraft since I was a, a teenager and and over the years, you know, become interested in sort of that circle of writers who he both influenced like Robert E. Howard um, and, and August Derleth and, and others. Um, but, uh, you know, and then and those writers who influenced him, right, like Arthur Machen and Algernon Blackwood um, and, and so forth, uh, as well as the, the nonfiction, uh, you know, people who who influenced him like, uh, you know, Madame Blavatsky and Margaret Murray, who I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on <laughs> as well. Uh, but, you know, uh, the way I became familiar with this idea was um, that that essay that I mentioned, uh, you know, that I did on cryptozoology and science fiction, um, which was published in a, in a book, The Paranormal and Popular Culture. Uh, you know, while I was researching that, I kind of stumbled across uh, th this book, um, Carol J. Silver's uh, Strange and Secret Peoples, uh, Fairies and Victorian Consciousness. And um, I started reading this book and it was one of those things where, you know, I knew that what Silver was talking about didn't have anything to do directly with the essay I was working on at the time, but it kind of temporarily for about a month there derailed my research trajectory because I couldn't put Silver's book down because it was so fascinating you know, she explores this idea of how during the Victorian era um, or, or really throughout the 19th century, there was this body of anthropological thought that suggested that fairies weren't just part of folklore. They were uh, they were based on something real, right, that there had been some race, some group of of, of people or or subhumans, right, or various other sort of problematic categories that we can talk about. But, you know, that there had been been an actual group that had been uh, responsible for for the origins of of stories about fairies, about elves, about trolls and related sort of uh, of entities. Um, and I just found this, you know, this notion uh, sort of fascinating. And, and Silver, I don't believe um, ever uses the term euhemerism, but coming out of religious studies this is a term that you will occasionally hear uh, invoked, which is this this old notion. Uh, it comes from a, a Greek writer, uh, Euhemerus, who had had argued that the uh, Olympian gods were not just made up characters; that they were based on old uh, kings and queens of the Hellenistic world who uh, had really existed, but. Uh, people had forgotten about them, and over over time, they'd been mythologized. And uh, when you, when you look into you know this this idea has a, a very long pedigree, um, and in particular, you know seems to have been really popular amongst kind of Scandinavian uh, intellectuals. You know, if you go back and you read like the original prose Eddas by um, Snorri uh, Sturluson, right, which is our source for the the Norse myths, Sturluson starts off that work um and, and you only get this if you read the original prose eddas because almost nobody you know if you're reading a modern retelling of the norse myths by like neil gaiman or somebody they never mention this but strulson was a, a christian and he was arguing that the norse gods weren't actual deities they were refugees from troy who had come to scandinavia and uh, been these great heroes and, and soldiers and then over time people forgot about them and they just remembered this mythological version of them they remember them as odin and thor and and loki and uh etc um 
And but then in the uh, the 19th uh, century, this idea got picked up again by a number of intellectuals, this notion of euhemerism and was really popular and was really prom, you know, promulgated widely that, um, you know, that myths and legends and folktales had some empirical reality behind them. Right. They were they were based on something that had actually happened, that had actually occurred. Um, and and you still see this idea all the time today. And I've really over, you know, in recent years come to think that you humorism to a large extent is sort of the linchpin of so much kind of Fortean thinking, you know, and it's it seems like such a, a commonplace thing. You know, you you hear this all the time. People will say um, either in a, you know, ostensibly nonfiction or especially you still hear it a lot in fictional contexts. Right. You know, in movies and, and in books and things, somebody will say, you know, well, we know all legends are based on a grain of truth. Right. Or there's always some truth at the root of a myth. And then the the story that unfolds is about finding out what that that kernel or that that root is, um, which, you know, seems on the one hand to a lot of people like common sense, though, you know, it's one of those things that also when you I think if you think about it you realize it's kind of ridiculous because for one thing, it it really undercuts our propensity as, as people to frankly, just make stuff up, you know? Um, and it, it seems to really be rooted in this idea that, you know, the human imagination isn't a thing, right? That in fact, um, you know, we can only talk about stuff that we've actually experienced. We can't, um, confabulate or invent or, or or do any of that stuff and in fact some of the people that I'm sure we'll we'll talk about later on like uh, Bernard Hulvelman's actually right the father of cryptozoology if you read Hulvelman's uh, you know some of his essays and things a lot of which were collected in a in a posthumous book called the um, natural history of hidden animals Hulvelman straight up says in that book that um, you know the human imagination is limited, right? He just refuses to accept the idea that uh, people can make stuff up. And so as a, then this is his justification for cryptozoology in a big way, which is that all these stories about monsters have to be based on something, right? Somebody had to run into some creature at some point that inspired the story of dragons or unicorns or griffins or, you know, uh, you know, um, the wild man of the woods or what have you. Right. And, and in fact, Hulverman's, you know, as he went on in life seemed to take this to more and more of a extreme extent. Um, but you know, that's also jumping a little bit ahead there, but yeah, that's, um, but as far as, as, as my work here, yeah, this was, you know, I needed a term for this specific version of it involving fairies. And so I decided to call it fairy euhemerism in particular and uh and you know the, and i guess that's the the idea or, or you know hopefully i mean that'll maybe will become the name going forwards that more people will use i mean you pointed me in the direction of this um you know this uh thesis by emily fergus uh goblin like fantastic little people in deep time at the fin de seal and uh and fergus uh who was apparently onto the same stuff i was at the same time I was writing this essay, um, only she wrote a whole 
uh, you know, master's thesis about it, but she also talks about it in terms of being fairy euhemerism. So that's at least two of us. So, <laughs> so this this idea that the, the the fairy stories are based on some actual race, and they're usually referred to as a short dark people in Europe prior to the arrival of Celtic peoples. That's the usual way in which this story sort of takes place, takes shape over the 19th century. And it has some early champions in some famous names. So you mentioned in your your chapter that Walter Scott has some ideas about this in the 1830s. Um, And maybe we're going to get to David McRitchie seems to be one of the main the main guys and that kind of late 19th century period is the one that's most interesting to me but we better we should mention maybe a few of the of the precursors How, what what state is this idea in prior to say the 1880s yeah so um at least in, in terms of my my research um the oldest example that i could uh find of this um was uh as as i think you just mentioned right um uh, uh sir wall um was, was yeah Sir Walter Scott right so the famous uh, Scottish novelist and and poet right who who writes Ivanhoe um and uh, is of course uh you know has this life lifelong interest in the occult that eventually produces this uh book in 1830 letters on demonology and witchcraft and Scott yeah was was really a kind of proto um uh, cryptozoologist in in a way because in letters uh, of on demonology and witchcraft um, he does write about how he thinks that, you know, the stories about the dwarfs or the fairies, right, um, were, were not an invention of, of the Celtic people, as he says, but actually seem to have originated in a kind of diminutive, uh, you know, race or, or, or indigenous population of people um, who previously uh, existed in, in the regions of um, the British Isles. So, and he seems to uh, connect these uh, in particular to, uh, you know, he talks about, um, and, and you'll see this this a lot, is everybody's always trying to find a, a, a kind of real world um, group of people who they can uh, sort of map on as being a, a close proxy to this hypothetical uh, fairy race. And so he talks about, you know, the, the Finnish people and the Lettish people and the Lapish people um, and everything. But one of the things that's also really important in um, Sir Walter Scott's uh, notion of this is that he doesn't think there's anything supernatural about these people, right? Um, he thinks that, you know, they they achieve this kind of folkloric um, aura because they were really good at metallurgy um, and they also had a, a proficiency at meteorology. And uh, so this uh, to, you know, the in, the incoming people um, look to them like supernatural abilities, like they could predict the weather or they could manipulate the elements. But in fact, you know, they just had uh, sort of access to to technology that was a little bit more advanced than the people who came after them and ultimately uh, displaced them. And you you do find that this seems to have been a particularly um, popular notion around a lot of uh, Scottish intellectuals, right? So another one um, is uh, is um, I believe yeah John John Francis Campbell of Eastleigh who writes you know popular tales of the West Highlands. Uh, 
you know, and he says, uh, I'll quote him, he writes in there, quote, men do believe in fairies, though they will not readily confess the fact. And though I do not myself believe that fairies are, in spite of the strong evidence offered, I believe there once was a small race of people in these islands who are remembered as fairies, right? Um, and again, he connects these to uh, to the the Lapish people, or or the, you know, which are the indigenous Sami people that you find up in Scandinavia. Um, and uh, you also have, uh, you know, there's there's various other um, notable people over time. Uh, another big one is, of course, uh, Sir Edward Taylor, who uh, uh, writes in 1871. Darwin's ideas um and again Taylor you know notes this idea he says you know myths of giants and dwarfs um you know are based off of uh, memories of, of previous races that had existed in the Stone Age um Taylor's kind of real important contribution to this seems to be that he takes the the fact that fairies um, are often repelled by iron, right? Um, iron is an, is an apropotraic towards them, or it's a, a magical uh, thing that can can ward them off, similar to you think about like garlic with vampires or something. Um, and Taylor interprets this to mean that the this uh, this race that inspired the fairies hadn't progressed past Stone Age technology. And so, therefore, when um, the the next the next in uh, you know next wave of people comes in uh, with their uh, Iron Age technology, um, they're able to technologically outclass them and and uh, destroy them. And so, as a result, uh, this creates the idea that iron is hateful and hurtful to the fairies. Uh, in a similar vein, you have uh, the folklorist John. Um, Stuart, Stuart Glenny, who uh, argues that stories about like the the Swan Maiden and other sort of Beauty and the Beast tales that involve somebody uh, marrying or, or um, you know, having a relation with, uh, you know, some sort of fairy or, or uh, folkloric creatures were probably based on um, actual interbreeding that went on between, uh, you know, um, the, this this ancient uh, fairy race and and here you know Stuart Glenny puts a, a particular kind of troubling racialized aspect to it because he talks about this idea of you know specifically white European women being abducted and raped by bestial black and brown skinned men um, and that sort of thing uh, and you know not everybody who is is a proponent of this is necessarily from uh, the British Isles either though and so one of them who's this really fascinating character this guy who I've become you know just uh, a little bit obsessed with over the years is a Swedish folklorist, uh, Gunnar Olaf Hilton Kvalis. And uh, he wrote, um, you know, Kvalis was another one of these guys, a lot like Scott, who really was a kind of, uh, if you think about pioneering cryptozoologist, he, you know, he spent his life um, in this kind of quixotic quest to try to find proof that the um, this uh, Swedish dragon or Lindorm was real, right? I mean, he he kind of spent all of his life savings and stuff uh, trying to trying to capture a Lindorm, and that's the stuff that you'll usually find written about him the most in sort of English language um, uh, 
uh, cryptozoological or Fordian literature when you find anything. But he also publishes this ethnographical study of uh, Scandinavian uh, troll legends in uh, 1868, um, which is this really kind of pioneering work. And in that, you know, he goes he goes all throughout Sweden and Denmark and Iceland um, collecting troll stories. And he becomes convinced and, and argues in this work that, you know, these trolls are, you know, memories of some real, uh, he says, you know, dark skinned, hairy, aboriginal race that had um, originally existed. And and he does note that troll is kind of a often a generalized term for supernatural beings, but he specifically kind of zeroes in that in southern Sweden, um, trolls are specifically kind of small, short statured individuals. He says not larger than a half grown child, um, and he thinks that these are probably the original trolls. And again, they were they were a real group of of creatures, and and for the the corporal reality of trolls. Hilton Cavalis in particular cites, you know, things like a, a 1691 court case in which a Swedish laborer was tried and found guilty for engaging in, quote, illicit intercourse with a troll. Right. Um, and, and so, again, to, you know, sort of Hilton Cavalis's mind, you know, if you're charged in a, a court of law for having sex with a troll, then you must have actually had sex with something, you know, so. Kind of reminds me of of some of the Scottish witch trials where there was some crossover with, you know, fairy lore and and you know some of the the imps of the witches are, are described in ways that sound more like fairies to us or, or they would use that word, maybe not in the way that we we would expect it now. So one thing yeah, that no, changed, absolutely yeah something that that I think changes during the nineteenth century is the the view on folklore and, and so early in the century it's seen as something that's primitive and backwards and you know the developed um. Uh, nations of of the west of Europe see themselves as being rationalist and in post enlightenment and and that they look they're not in, so interested the intellectuals are not so interested necessarily in in the folklore and then by the end of the nineteenth century you have this feeling that maybe we're losing something with our industrialization and so you get the the folklore society and these people who feel that they have to go into the countryside to sort of reverse colonize themselves I am speaking largely about British folklorists here. Um, and go into the countryside and collect the stories, and and then this this idea of the fairy euhemerism kind of enters a new stage with, with I suppose people like David McRitchie and um, Halliburton as well. Maybe we'll say something about that period. Yeah, no, I, I I would absolutely agree with that. I mean, I think that the you know the important thing about euhemerism, and this is you know kind of become a big theme in a lot of my work, especially that work dealing. Um, with cryptozoology, right, is that I think that euhemerism, in a way, allows, you know, sort of old folkloric ideas dive into um, sort of scientific um, rationalist uh, era, right, where those kinds, that kind of thinking is coming to, uh, you know, subsume, well, that that's the thing, right, I think it's usually thought of as coming to replace or dominate sort of older supernatural ways of thinking, um, and I actually agree with a, a religious studies scholar, um, uh, uh, Jason Josephson Storm, who who back in 2017 published a book called The Myth of Disenchantment, where he argues that this idea that, you know, the Enlightenment displaced um, supernatural ways of thinking uh, is really a misnomer. And that what really happened was that Enlightenment sort of subsumed those ways of thinking and put kind of 
new uh, varnish on them, where it allowed them to be uh, it allowed them to be seen as respectable, but as long as that they as long as they were spoken about um, with sort of ostensibly the vocabulary of like science or anthropology or something like that, right? And so as a result, you know, you can't keep you know talking about dragons or sea serpents as if you know they're some kind of mystical magical thing but if you want to talk about dragons and sea serpents as being uh you know remnant dinosaurs or plesiosaurs that's acceptable right that's that's okay to do in the same way you know if you want to talk about uh fairies you can't talk about them as being you know magical you know little uh you know people with gossamer wings or or what have you but if you want to talk about them being the remnants of some sort of you know pre-modern human uh you know race then that's that's okay right that's anthropology right that's not um superstition and so it allows it allows folklore to continue and endure in a way that's that's what's really important i think about about euhemerism uh, during this time period and why it becomes uh you know so popular and 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 i think in a real way continues to actually be popular if you think about you know the sort of arguments that are being made whether by cryptozoologists or you know i think you can also extend this into like the ancient alien proponents and stuff right you know if you want to keep your monsters and your gods and magic and that kind of stuff alive um then you, you you can, but you just have to change the way that they're being they're being talked about. And in in a sense, and what I've argued in, in previous work of mine is that you have to start talking about them in this, you know, this almost sort of science fictional capacity, right? Rather than a in a more kind of fantasy vocabulary. Though I think as as we'll see as we keep going, you know, even within the realm of sort of modern fantasy fiction, you you find a lot of this um kind of uh you know pseudoscientific um verbiage getting getting played so yeah and i think many observers have have made this point but i suppose i read it today just today in emily fergus's um thesis where she finishes up by saying you know aliens and alien abductions as we recognize them today are pretty much just the update on the latest update on fairy stories many, many people have made that point but and she says it specifically in the context of fairy humorism, so it's it's fairly on the nose. Yeah, no, yeah, and and Ferguson is getting that from you know uh, Silver, who who ends her book making that same uh, that same sort of argument. Um, though you know what what I think is interesting with both Silver and Ferguson is you know I don't I, and I think Ferguson in particular, or not Ferguson, I'm sorry, Silver, it cites you know like um Jacques Vallée you know and, and his whole ideas of connecting like fairies with aliens and stuff um but i you know with my you know the published version of my essay one of the things that i was trying to do um a little bit and again because of of space i couldn't go on at, at great length trying to argue this point but neither of them kind of show how that process potentially could have happened right what how do you go from fairies to to aliens specifically, um, and I, I, I try to, I try to actually, you know, show that work. And specifically, I think you can see that happening um, in the writings of H.P. Lovecraft, right? Um, specifically in *The Whisperer* and *The Darkness*, that story. Um, you know, he, 
you know, I don't want to give him necessarily maybe all of the credit for being the one to make that shift. But he is, you know, in that particular story, he does, you know, directly cite um, Arthur Machen, who I'm sure we're going to go into more detail about in a minute. And but then makes, you know, you know, cites his little people stories, but then, you know, kind of puts that twist on it of, well, turns out they're not primitive anthropoids, but they're extraterrestrials. So. Every time I've read about this in sort of weird fiction from the turn of the century and um, I suppose I'm thinking most clearly, there's a short story called Pallinghurst Barrow, which is written by um, Grant Allen, who was a very prolific 19th century writer. And he, he's mentioned outright in H.G. Wells's The Time Machine, if I remember correctly. And he he's mentioned by... He's in. I've just finished a biography of Arthur Conan Doyle, and he's all over it. They were very close, and they helped each other out. Yeah, they were he neighbors. Out. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, his book uh, or his short story, Pallinghurst Barrow, is an iteration of the fairy humor story from the 1890s, and he seems to be an important person in getting this idea out there. And he cites. Uh, a fellow by the name of David McRitchie, as as many of them do. So I thought we might mention something about him. He feels like an important character in the history of this idea during the 1880s and 90s. Yeah. So um, and yeah, you're you're right that you know, Pallinghurst Barrow is um, you know one of one of the first, if not the first, stories um, that uh, you know fictionalized accounts that that deals with this idea of, of fairy euhemerism and. Um, I know. I know. Alan had worked uh, as uh, it seems to have been. He was a, basically what we today would call like a science journalist for a long time. Um, you know, I know he he uh, uh, and and he wrote several articles uh, dealing with this idea and basically kind of you know uh, um, taking taking these, these these notions of David McRitchie's and uh, you know giving them a lot of public exposure. Um, but he's he's the only person who outright cites. Um, David McRitchie, right? I mean, you don't see direct citations to McRitchie in either, um, you know, uh, uh, in either Arthur Machen or uh, Robert E. Howard or Lovecraft or any of the other uh, later people, um, or, or for that matter, um, was it John uh, John Buchan's No Man's Land, which is another important early work. Um, but yeah, Al- Alan does, and so McRitchie. You know, he was a Scottish-born folklorist and antiquarian. Um, he was born in 1851. He eventually dies in 1925. And this this whole idea of fairy euhemerism, you know, it's it seems to have prior to to Mac Ritchie, this was a this was a thing that, you know, if you were in folklore, if you were in anthropology, right? If you were you were a historian, you you know you probably touched on this. You know, you brought it up in like with, with Hilton Covelis, right? If you were writing a book on trolls, you know, it might be you know, your conclusion that you came to, but that wasn't necessarily what the book was about. But McRitchie really seems to have been the first person that tried to make this his his brand, if you will, his career, right, what he was going to be known for. And he wrote several books throughout his life, but the two that are really the, the most important is uh, The Testimony of Tradition from 1890 and then uh, Fins, Fairies, and Picks from 1893. And this is where he 
he argues this basic thesis that there had been a what he describes as Turanian or mongoloid race of pygmies uh, that had uh, come down from from Asia. Um, that's essentially what both of those terms are, are mean is that, you know, people of, of Asian extraction, um, then they'd come down and they'd inhabited, uh, you know, the European mainland uh, and the British Isles, at least up until um, McRitchie thought the 11th century, uh, at which point then you have modern white Europeans who come in and, and wipe them out. And, uh, you know, the, the, the important thing about or one of the important things about this is, as you know, um, McRitchie kind of largely, you know, recapitulates a lot of the stuff that we've already talked about the, you know, the ideas about, you know, the relationship between fairies and iron or, you know, the, them not actually having supernatural abilities, but, um, you know, having forms of technology that maybe looked supernatural. Uh, McRitchie makes arguments that the, you know, the legends of the Selkies, right uh these people who were supposed to kind of be like wear seals were actually based on the fact that these pygmy races had you know these sort of uh seal skin canoes that you know the the white um you know uh people who came in afterwards didn't have this kind of technology and this was seen as as really weird and somehow became misremembered as uh you know as the idea that they could shapeshift into seals and uh and you know McRitchie also kind of kind of takes every, every uh, group of, of actual people who had previously been used as a, an analogy um, or, uh, or, you know, for, for this fairy race and, and just, you know, lumps them all, all together, right? So he says, you know, well, they're like the, the Picts, they're like the American Eskimos, they're like the Japanese Anu, right? Um, you know, it's, it's really sort of a, a free-for-all uh, with that, um, in, in that way, uh, but the the other point that I really uh, kind of stress here is, you know, he repeatedly also uses this term pygmy, which later on and and Ferguson admittedly is able to go into much more detail in uh, in her thesis than I was able to in my chapter on this particular point. But, you know, the idea of, of pygmies as we might think about them today and associating it with specific uh, groups of people in Africa and sub-Saharan Africa, you know, those, uh, you know, white um, colonialists came into contact with those people during the 19th century for the first time. Um, but it wasn't contact with those people that uh, introduced this notion of, of the pygmy to kind of uh, European or, or British consciousness. This idea kind of already existed and rather the encounters with African pygmies was seen as sort of confirmation of these older ideas. And in particular, um, you know, there was a, a, an English physician, Edward Tyson, who uh, in 1698, uh, you know, was given given the the body of a of a diminutive creature that you know wasn't recognized by science at that time and Tyson you know dissected the corpse and and wrote, and sketched it and wrote up his findings in a 1699 report called the anatomy of a pygmy um in which he he writes significantly that quote the pygmy is no man nor yet the common ape but some sort of animal between both 
end quote. And, and furthermore, goes on to speculate that these pygmies must be, and again, total euhemerism here, must be the source, source for both the um, uh, Greco-Roman satyr and also the European wild man of the woods. Uh, but what uh, what we know today from looking at Tyson's notes and his sketches, what he actually had was it seems to have been a juvenile chimpanzee. Right. But he kind of turns this chimpanzee into some sort of, you know, fabulous, you know, manimal, essentially. And so it's this kind of of idea of the pygmy that McRitchie is picking up on. And so this is why when he's talking about his his fairy pygmies, right, his Turanian pygmies, you know, even though this is supposed to be some race of ostensibly people that inhabited the British Isles, he's describing them in ways that sound much more animalistic, right? They're agile, they're covered in hair, they eat raw flesh, they can see in the dark, they live in caves, you know, um, rather than, again, you know, they're not well, you know, they're not Tolkien's hobbits, right? They're not, no. you know, these civilized, nice little English no. gentry, right? So, yeah. And this is even before Darwinism comes into the mix. And then, you know, all of the subsequent sort of anxiety over man's place, you know, in the animal kingdom comes into play. And this kind of stock character of the the degenerate, you know, ape man who shows up again and again in Victorian fantastic fiction around the turn of the century. And I mentioned the H.G. Wells and the Time Machine and, and that he outright sources um, David McRitchie. And, and of course, that is in the context of the Morlocks, who are an explicitly Darwinian version of this trope where it's the future and mankind has you know, mankind's evolution has either made us into these little feeble creatures or these, you know, uh, subterranean beast-like uh, kind of short, shrunken, dwarf, dwarfish creatures. And, and it isn't always remembered, but um, Mr. Hyde from Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is is shorter than um, Dr. Jekyll. He's smaller. Um, and, and again, I, I you have to imagine that this idea is being is being tapped here, either consciously or subconsciously. I don't know if Stevenson, Stevenson ever wrote directly that he was influenced by it by any of these people but i mean it's 1887 i think so it's it's the right time and um, just about and i suppose even as far as the lost world in 1912 with the the ape men in, in that novel you know there's an extra added dimension to the fact that they are like us but you know more simian and and, and shorter and again the whole darwinian thing is, is pulled into it here yeah absolutely um you know and it's uh you know it's one of those things where um, you know, I mean, at least with, with H.G. Wells, I mean, so yeah, the, the time machine is about as close as Wells ever gets to writing anything that deals with sort of like fairy humorism proper. Um, but, you know, the, the work that directly engages with this is Wells's uh, nonfiction book, The Outline of History from 1922, which is this macro history of the world for general audiences that Wells writes. Um, and he directly references the the this idea of a fairy euhemerism in it and and just assumes that you know yeah the the british isles were originally inhabited by uh, you know this previous race of of little people um what's notable about wells is that he doesn't seem to have uh bought in specifically to mcritchie's ideas that they were 
Asiatic in descent, but rather into what was this competing hypothesis that they were actually originally Mediterranean in descent. And this was something that was championed, for example, by the English folklorist, um, the, the Reverend Sabing Baring Gould, who's probably more famous for his work on werewolves. But he also, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he also wrote about, um, you know, the, the little people as well. And significantly uh, in this case, um, Baring Gould is one of the people who, uh, you know, claims who also thought that this this race was not extinct, right? Most of these people, including McRitchie, assumed that this race had been wiped out long, long ago. Um, though, you know, you might recall, you know, I read that quote earlier from uh, Campbell, who said, uh, you know, that there was uh, strong evidence that, in fact, these this people did exist, but he didn't believe it. Well, uh, Baring Gould did, and in fact claimed that you know, he'd had an experience where he was traveling uh, to Montepeller and his carriage had been um, surrounded at one point by little imps or dwarfs, you know. So this actually happened to him. And and likewise, his wife and his young son had their own sightings where they claimed that they were approached by creatures which they would identify as elves or gnomes. So, um, you know, so yeah, you know, but yeah, Wells is definitely... Uh, you know, is definitely aware of this. In fact, it, it's probably from it, it's probably from Wells that Robert E. Howard learns about this originally, um, because we know that uh, Howard owned a copy of Wells as the outline of history. So but, but then you're absolutely right as far as, you know, some of the other uh, people you mentioned. Uh, this definitely seems to have been in Robert Louis Stevenson's mind with the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, because Hyde is described as pale and dwarfish. He's covered with hair. He has an ape-like fury and he's described as a troglodyte, you know? Um, so yeah, ab absolutely. You know, this is really, this is really in the air at the time. A lot of these writers um, who we've mentioned so far latch on to this kind of idea. Another one is, of course, uh, the famous Irish writer um, Sheridan La Fanu, you know, who's best remembered for his vampire novel, Carmilla. But he writes a story in 1872 called The Familiar, um, which is about a, a retired sea captain who finds himself being stalked by some kind of horrible dwarf. So, yeah. Oh, oh, and we shouldn't forget to mention, you said, you mentioned Doyle, with, uh, of course, The Lost World, but the one that I cite in particular is, of course, the Sherlock Holmes novel, The Sign of Four from 1890, right, where Doyle is pursuing this assassin. And, you know, the sort of twist at the end of the story is that when he finally comes face to face with this assassin, um, it's not a person. But um, as he describes it, and I'll just quote here, quote, a little black man, the smallest I'd ever seen with a great misshapen head and a shock of tangled, disheveled hair, a face that was enough to give a man a sleepless night on account of its small eyes, which glowed and burned with a somber light and uh, uh, and thick lips that when pulled back revealed teeth, which grinned and chattered at us with a half animal fury. So again, it's just yeah. Yeah, it's one of these ideas that you think is obscure and then you start noticing it everywhere. And like, yeah. you know, these are these are not all these are not obscure works like Sherlock Holmes, H.G. Wells. And you, you mentioned that there are people at this time who think that the these beings are still alive, you know, and, and again, you can't one can't not be reminded of, of contemporary cryptozoology. But there's a fellow named Halliburton who goes to the Atlas Mountains. He believes that these people are still alive and that he has evidence for their continued 
existence. And he seems to imagine them as being more Mediterranean. Oh yeah. I mean, absolutely. You know, yeah, there's, there's, uh, you know, quite a few of, of, yeah. Uh, people, it seems who, who thought that, yeah, there was evidence that, you know, these, this little people or some version of them were, were still alive. Um, you know, I mentioned in my essay, you know, another one of them is of course, uh, you know, the, the American, uh, Madison Grant, right. Who, as a, a prominent uh, figure, uh, he was, you know, associated with the American Museum of Natural History. Um, he was a, an advocate of eugenics, right? Um, and he writes, you know, the, the extremely, uh, you know, xenophobic work, The Passing of the Great Race, in, in 1916. But in in that book, you know, he mentions again. I'll just read the quote here. Um, he says, "In the old black breed of Scotland, ferocious gorilla-like living specimens of Paleolithic man are found not infrequently on the west coast of Ireland and are easily recognized by the great upper lip, bridgeless, bridgeless nose, beetling brow with low growing hair and wild and savage aspect, the proportions of the skull which give rise to this large upper lip, the low forehead and the suborbital ridges are certainly Neanderthal characters. And then he goes on to say that if these aren't actual Neanderthals, then certainly they must be, quote, derived from some very ancient and primitive race as yet undescribed. So um, and and, you know, this is this is fascinating because you know, often when I, you know, the context that I, I've run into to this with, you know, what Grant's talking about is, you know, typically, you know, because of the the larger sort of nature of the passing of the great race, you know, people just was like, well, this is just Grant being, you know, his most horribly racist. And Grant was certainly a horrible racist. But in this particular instance, you know, he really seems to actually not be just trying to describe Scottish people in the most awful way possible, but actually thinking that there is, as he says, like living specimens of Paleolithic man still somewhere in Scotland, right? Um, and in fact, you know, one of the other things that I didn't have a chance to mention, uh, which is, you know, really interesting, uh, is that, you know, I, I don't know how familiar you are with um, uh, the geneticist, he, he's no longer alive, but uh, Brian Sykes. Brian Sykes, yeah. Yeah, so he, you know, uh, you know, I think is known for people who are interested in kind of cryptozoology because, uh, you know, like the last book that he wrote um, was the, was this book on, you know, looking for evidence of Bigfoot and the Yeti and whatnot. But prior to that, in 2006, um, Sykes had published this book called Blood of the Isles, where he had done this uh, sort of ethnographical genetic survey of the British Isles. And he said that it was doing that work that kind of turned him on to the cryptozoological stuff, because one of the things that he ran into was when he was uh, looking for, you know, DNA samples in Wales, he had people, you know, he would go into like pubs and he would run into people who would tell him, you know, oh, you know, when I was a kid in the 50s or the 60s, there were guys living in some village somewhere who they were Neanderthals. They had to be Neanderthals because they just, you know, they looked like, you know, what our sort of collective idea of that is. And, and of course, you know, Sykes, you know, followed that up and said, you know, that, you know, there was no evidence of, of any actual Neanderthals, but it's one of the first things that got him him interested in that. And then I know there was a really good article um, written that kind of goes into more detail about this actually in a in 14 times back in uh, February 2016 called the Welsh Neanderthals. So, but yeah. 
I did not know that. That's incredible. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> we 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 better get soon to the big boys, the big boys of weird fiction. Who we we better get talking about Arthur Mackin and Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard. Before before we do that, I I have to give a shout out to some of the some of what are to me the most interesting iterations of this from fellows who were maybe maybe one step down in the in one tier down in the weird fiction, but um maybe better known for other things. So you mentioned uh, John Buchan. That, that's how I say it. I make no oh. uh, claims that it's correct. <laughs> um, better known for the 39 Steps, but he wrote a story called No Man's Land in 1899 about a, 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 the narrator encounters a race of these beings in, in the wilds of Scotland. And it, it, as I recall, it's played very straight. They are just these kind of prehistoric holdovers. There's nothing mystical about them. Um, but it is explicitly mentioned that they are the source of the folklore about little people in Scotland. Um, and my personal favourite, and I've covered this before in the show, is The Horror Horn by E.F. Benson from 1922. And I think I'm really taken with this because the first I went into this story in great depth a couple of years ago on the show. And I was interpreting it at the time in, in the in the light of... Um, cryptozoology as it was at the time because it's 1922 one year before that you have kind of like the first burst of yeti mania with the the colonel howard bury footprints on everest um, in 1921 and so you know i was interpreting it as a story about the yeti except you know inexplicably set in the alps um and then this I, because i wasn't aware of fairy humorism and now that adds a whole different flavor to it and he's he's pulling on it he's pulling on both of these strands i think and uniting them. So I find it interesting um, for that reason. And and the Darwinian vein is very strong in that story. And if I may indulge myself slightly and read a little bit here, when he when the when the main character meets the creatures who are these shrunken ape-like things living in the Alps, he says, I saw then how terrible a living thing could be and how terrible in consequence was life itself. In us all, I suppose, lurks some inherited germ of that ineffable bestiality. And who knows whether, sterile as it has apparently become in the course of centuries, it might not fructify again. When I saw that creature's sun itself, I looked into the abyss out of which we have crawled. And these creatures are trying to crawl out of it now, if they exist any longer. So this is this is a horror of your own background. Your, this is a horror of your own ancestry. This is, the hor- this is existential and, and almost cosmic and Lovecraftian because... This is now making me think of, you know, the Arthur Germain story where uh, a Lovecraft story in which a character delves into his own um, his own background of his family and finds out that he's descended from things which are not human. And so, you know, it all fits together, doesn't it? Rather rather nicely. This archetype is used to address these issues again and again, these concerns, these anxieties. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, yeah, I've read both of those. Um, yeah, the Benson story. I mean, Lovecraft, we know read that. I mean, he cites it directly in uh, his famous essay, Supernatural Horror in Literature. Um, yeah, the horror horn and, and Lovecraft yeah, would have lived also yeah, through that first wave of uh, Yeti, Yeti mania. And then the, oh, the he uses the word Migu, doesn't he? In um, He does. Yeah. Whisper so, in he, Darkness, which is a Yeti uses, euphemism. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the yeah, it's one of the it's one of the terms yeah, for the Yeti that you find uh, you find used. And in fact, yeah, Lovecraft. Yeah, he mentions that explicitly in uh, in Whisperer and Darkness. So um, I had that I have that, that quote in the in the essay and 
and somewhere where he yeah so in whisper and darkness he says yeah quote um he says the abominable snowmen who lurk hideously amidst the ice and rock pinnacles of the himalayan summits right yeah so yes. lovecraft was definitely <laughs> from you know de- lovecraft definitely knew his his cryptozoology um as well for for the time and and then yeah the other story um uh you know no man's land um what's in, what's interesting there is yeah um is Buchan is not uh, referenced in supernatural. Well, he is referenced in supernatural horror and literature, but not that particular story, uh, No Man's Land, or the book that it uh, appeared in, The Watcher at the Threshold, um, which uh, is is mentioned specifically by Lovecraft. But that's a story that when I first read it, just really struck me as this is the bridge between, you know, Machen and Howard and Lovecraft because. Um, it has that sort of scholarly, you know, Victorian scholarly, uh, you know, antiquarian professor type protagonist who goes meddling with things that he shouldn't. But unlike, you know, Grant Allen's um, Palling, Pallinghurst's Borrow, where, you know, it just it never it never transcends that level. Um, you know, you get that in like the first half of No Man's Land, where it's, you know, this kind of, you know, uh, you know, detached observer who who gets you know drawn in and 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 discovers this horror and then he manages and then and then it turns into like a Howard story because he manages to escape and his escape is very exciting and you know he's running for his life and you know he's you know uh, cutting his feet on on the rocky you know precipices and then you know he manages to get away and and then in a, a move very much unlike a Machen or or for that matter sort of Lovecraft protagonist you know he goes back because he finds out that the people who he was staying with this farmer, he finds out that this farmer's um, sister has been captured and she's going to be used as, as a sacrifice or worse by the little people. And so, you know, he, he, you know, grabs some weapons and he's like, I'm going back in there. I'm going to save her, which is a total, yeah. Robert E. Howard moves. So. It's, it's pulp, isn't it? That's, that's yeah. what we're, <laughs> it goes, it goes into that. It goes into that pulp. Absolutely. So yeah, no, you, you have to talk about both of those, I think before you can, they're, they're really influential, right? Like I said, on the, the heavy hitters. So. Okay, we'd better we better talk about Mackin then and his his use of this idea because it had it had consequences on other other writers. Yeah, so I don't know um I don't remember specifically how much you might have covered previously on the show about Mackin. Um we I did one episode on the novel of the Black Seal. Okay. Um but it was a very long time ago and I I don't profess to be any sort of expert. So just just real briefly, I mean, so um, Arthur Mackin was the pen name. He was of uh, Arthur Llewellyn Jones. He was a, a Welsh writer. Um, so from uh, uh, Caerleon uh, in, in Monmouthshire. Uh, and he came from a, a long line of Church of England clergymen. Um, and he, he never claims to have abandoned his sort of core beliefs in the reality of Christianity, but he also developed a, a sort of lifelong interest in the occult from an early age. Um, and interestingly, like Lovecraft, like Howard, um, he was largely an autodidact. He never attended university. He had very little sort of formal education, but he became a writer 
And in uh, 1887, when he was 24, he, he he's living in London at this point, and he marries this uh, eccentric musician and thespian named Amelia Hogg. And Hogg has a lot of friends and connections in what was sort of London's bohemian circle at the time. And she's the one who ends up introducing uh, Machen to the writer and occultist um, A.E. Waite, who is today best remembered for the writer Waite Smith tarot deck. And uh, Machen and, and Waite became fast friends, and it was Waite who persuaded Machen to join uh, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Uh, so, and then it's shortly after he joins the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn that Machen enters into his sort of first great period of horror fiction writing in 1894. He publishes his novella, The Great God Pan, uh, which no less than Stephen King has described as perhaps the best horror story in the English language. Um, and then the following year in 1895, he publishes his first novel, The Three Imposters, which includes the, the story you mentioned, the novel, The Black Seal. And that same year, he also publishes two other uh, short stories, The Red Hand and The Shining Pyramid, both. And, and all of these uh, deal to some extent with this fairy, euhemerist guy or, or idea. Uh, um, and it's uh, in both The Red Hand and The Shining Pyramid, uh, the main character is this guy Dyson, who's sort of a, a pretty blatant kind of Sherlock Holmes knockoff, right? And, and not quite as as uh, erudite or interesting as Holmes, but you know he's basically a kind of freelance investigator. And in the Red Hand, you have this story where a man is slain in the London suburbs with a prehistoric stone axe, and Dyson thinks that the perpetrator must be, as he says, a troglodyte or a caveman who has survived into the present day. And uh, he has a, Dyson has a friend, an ethnologist named Phillips, who thinks that this is just preposterous. And of course, in this case, Phillips is proven correct because they managed to track down the perpetrator, who turns out to be a perfectly normal person who just happens to have pilfered the axe from a Neolithic burial mound. But at the very end of the story, Machen includes this sort of final twist where he has Dyson and Phillips interrogating interrogating this guy the murderer and they ask him you know why he only stole an old axe from this burial mound when certainly there must have been better treasure for the taking and uh you know uh, obviously kind of frightened uh, out of his mind this guy you know whispers to them he says that he chose not to remain in the mound long because quote the keepers are still there and i saw them and it is not good for one to dwell in a place where the where those who live are only a little higher than the beasts end quote so um so it, it ends with this idea that actually well yeah the, these troglodytes these little people are there right they might have not been the ones to commit this murder but they're real and and then you have uh the shining pyramid which is a, a pretty short story and, and in my opinion not a particularly great one but it, it hits a lot of what will become kind of major tropes especially later in robert e howard's fiction but basically dyson is called upon to investigate the disappearance of a young girl from a, a country estate and uh, he goes out there and he finds a number of clues including uh, uh, mysterious flint arrowheads there's some cryptic graffiti um, that show these sort of slanted um, asian again kind of looking eyes and Dyson immediately includes that this must be the little people. And, um, and, you know, he's able to, to figure out where they live and in, in what feels like a real sort of anti-climax, but I guess also kind of heightens the horror of the story. You know, Dyson takes 
you know, his his again sort of Watson analog in this story out there and they see this girl get sacrificed by the little people and just do absolutely nothing about it. They yeah. just let it let it let it happen. So and and you yeah. know um but then it's a, weird... <laughs> it's a yeah, it's a weird it's a weird story. So <laughs> And then, of course, we get to the the novel, The Black Seal, which you you've already mentioned and and have covered before. But this is definitely the most elaborate of these stories, um, and involves this guy, um, you know, Professor William Gregg. He's an ethnologist. He's discovered this strange seal made of black stone with ancient writing. He becomes convinced that the the writers were the little people. He uproots his family, moves them out again to the English countryside, trying to find these people. Um, there's some interesting stuff going on in that story with a, a half human, um, uh, this, this, lo- this local boy who is kind of regarded as the village idiot, but who it ultimately turns out is actually a kind of fairy human hybrid or changeling. And uh, ultimately, Greg does run into, you know, does make contact with the little people that he's looking for. And it has also sort of predictably tragic results. And um, and then the other story that I highlight in my my essay is Mockin's is a later story by Mockin from 1920 called Out of the Earth, um, which is is a little bit more obscure, though. I did see recently that it was just recently republished in a, a new collection that's part of a series that the British Library is per, per, uh, putting out of classic weird fiction. Um, but this is this is an interesting story because Mockin writes it as if it was autobiographical. And he talks about how, you know, his family likes to go vacation in this small seaside town in Wales. And, uh, you know, there have been rumors this particular year of a group of rambunctious and dangerous children that are just kind of, uh, you know, assaulting tourists and, and making a nuisance out of themselves. Um, and, you know, the Mockin family goes to this this town and they have they have their regular holiday and you know don't seem to have uh you know notice don't see any you know roaming gang uh, gangs of juvenile delinquents or anything but afterwards uh he mentions that his son tells him that when they were they were at the beach one day and he went exploring amongst the dunes he encountered a group of what he describes as funny looking children who badly frightened him and then the story ends with with Machen, you know, uh, kind of recounting a similar story from a friend of his who lives in the town named Morgan, who describes having spied a, a quote, a swarm of noisome children, horrible little stunted creatures with old men's faces, with bloated faces, with little sunken eyes, with leering eyes, uttering cries that were to the ear what slime is to the touch, right, end quote. And uh, and the conclusion of this story is mocking is like, well, obviously these were the little people, right? That's that's what's actually going on here. And and you know this was uh, there there are there are a couple more stories as well, but those are kind of the big ones of Mockin that hit on this theme. But it was something that he was really fascinated by, and he he totally bought into this whole fairy humorist idea, sort of hook line and sinker. He he puts out a collection of essays in 1926 called Dreads and Drolls, and one of the essays in there um, is uh, is about this, where he are you know he basically recapitulates a lot of David Mac Ritchie and these other guys' arguments and and says you know that absolutely you know there used to be a race of little people that lived in the the British Isles. Interestingly enough, um, and something that I didn't get to mention in the uh, 
in the article um, is that you know Machen, uh in that in that essay from Dreads and Drolls kind of you know he he doesn't go as far again as as like uh, Baring Gould and saying that the little people are still around, but uh, later on in life uh, during the period where Machen's working as as a journalist right during the same period where he writes like the Bowman um, he will publish an article in uh, in uh, the uh, the graphic uh, called uh, little brown things it's published on February 13th 1926 and it's him responding to some rumors that have come out of uh, a coal mine in uh, the forest of Dean in, in Gloucestershire where supposedly some miners found the sort of fossilized bodies of two little people and only only they're not fossils they're sort of in a, a state of suspended animation and once they're brought out of the mind and exposed to the the open air they they expire and Machen writes an article about this where you know he's he's pretty much like ha i told you you know so um you know so that's <laughs> but yeah this is this is a lifelong preoccupation for him so that's astonishing yeah no i'd read that he he believed it but i didn't know he took it to that extent that's incredible yeah, I think he was just—he was waiting. He was waiting for that proof, you know. So, <laughs> so it, it's well known that um, Mackin was a huge influence on Lovecraft, or at least he was very, was very impressed with Mackin and, and wrote favorably about him and in, in his essays and in other places as well. But um, I, I suppose I have to mention the Margaret Murray connection here, which is that uh, Lovecraft also loved himself some Margaret Murray, and we love Margaret Murray here on this podcast as well. I'll bring her up whenever I can. And um, this is where the, the witch cult stuff that Lovecraft used in some of the stories becomes a little bit mixed up with the fairy euhemerism stuff. And I don't know, I suppose, uh, can, can I ask you what you can say a little bit about um, Lovecraft, his, his introduction to this material? Yeah, so there, there's two things. And yeah, I know you've you've done, uh, you, know, you did a previous episode on, on Murray and the witch cult. And more recently, you did that great episode with uh, Jeb Card on the um, you know, Murray and, and dealing with the the famous like Lower Quinton, you know, witch murders and um, and that. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, uh, spend too much time talking about Murray because I do feel you've, you've covered that very well. But it, it is worth pointing out. Um, and this was something that um, um, Ferguson also touches on in her her thesis is the fact that, um, you know, Murray straight up says in uh, the witch cult in Western Europe that the witch cult has its origins in uh, this this fairy race. Um, she uh, she makes no she makes no bones about that. She talks about how there is you know this idea of a relationship between fairies and witches is uh, well known and well documented, which is which is true. I mean, if anybody reads, uh, for example, like folklorist Ronald Hutton's recent book, The Witch, uh, he talks about that in there that witches and fairies have a very um, close relationship but uh you know murray of course is is writing thinking that you know these fairies are this actual um you know prehistoric dwarf race and uh that you know these witches are part of an actual witch cult and um and so you know she she builds she builds on this and yeah so that is the origins of of her witch cult is that it is uh in fact with the fairies and again you you can see this reflected um, even even before uh, Murray in a lot of the fiction, right? So in, in uh, 
uh, Grant Allen's uh, story, uh, in fact, in, in Pallinghurst Barrow, uh, when the protagonist gets uh, down into the, the, the barrow and encounters the, the little people there, you know, he describes the men as being uh, dwarves, but he describes the women as being witches, right? He says they look like horrible old hags with wild hair and pendulous breasts and everything, right? So he's making that connection um, as well early on. So, but, uh, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, Lovecraft, you know, he read um, uh, Margaret Murray and uh, just, you know, bought into the whole witch cult idea, just, you know, hook, line, and sinker. Um, and in fact, you know, this this influenced, you know, not only his fiction, but, um, you know, his thinking in supernatural horror in literature. And that's one of the things that's really interesting is um, in that book, um, Lovecraft actually attributes uh, fairy euhemerism as, as a defining feature of the Western horror tradition. He says, quote, much of the power of Western horror lore was undoubtedly due to the hidden but often suspected presence of a hidden cult of nocturnal worshippers descended from a squat race of mongoloids, end quote. So it's, it's, this, it's this fairy race and this witch cult that is what makes Westerners, in Lovecraft's opinion, so good at writing horror, right? Because we have this memory of this real thing um, in in the background. And, and yeah, this is – you find this all throughout Lovecraft's letters. You know, uh, after he read Murray, you know, he shot off just a slew of letters to anybody and everybody he knew, just, you know, raving about how brilliant he thought Margaret Murray was. And then specifically, if you look at the letters between – Lovecraft and, and Robert E. Howard, um, they spend a lot of time, especially in the beginning of their their correspondence before they move on to this larger philosophical argument that they had about the virtues or lack thereof of civilization versus barbarism. Early on, they are just all about fairy euhemerism and the witch cult, right? They're just back and forth, back and forth in their letters, you know, trying to figure out, well, you know, were they – Asiatic, were they Mediterranean? What was the witch cult? You know, there's a, a famous letter from the the, uh, the 30s where Lovecraft goes on and on to Howard about how, you know, um, you know the the Salem witch trials were uh, certainly partly a result of religious mania and mass hysteria, but in fact there were real witches operating out of Salem as well as as Murray has told us. So. Um, you know, they, they both they both were reading this stuff. They were both reading Arthur Mackin. Um, pretty much everybody in Lovecraft circle adored adored Mackin, so they were very familiar with his work. And then, but Love, Lovecraft and Howard, especially Howard, um, were the two who really, uh, you know, tried to put a lot of this into their fiction. Um, Lovecraft Lovecraft never necessarily writes a straight up sort of fairy humorist story the way that Howard will. But, um, you know, the, the couple of works of his, the two that I talk about in the essay is he writes this thing, which is posthumously referred to as the very old folk, which uh, is based on this dream that he has um, in which you basically have a group of, of Romans, uh, a Roman uh, military unit going into the tiny provincial town of Pompello at the foot of the Pyrenees in the Hispania, um, in Hispania, and and you know finding the the residents there, 
you know, kind of being terrorized by a race of what he describes as little yellow squint-eyed hill people who annually make off with a, a girl for ritual sacrifice. So basically the exact scenario you find in like the Shining Pyramid. And um, Lovecraft wrote about this dream in a, a bunch of his letters. He, he sent it out to a bunch of different correspondents. Um, and, and he talked about in a couple of these letters, specifically to his friend Frank Belknap Long, that he wanted to turn this dream into a longer story. He never seems to have gone around to that. And eventually Long asks him if he can if he can do it. And Lovecraft gives him permission. And this ends up becoming Frank Belknap Long's uh, novella, The Horror from the Hills, that's published in 1931. Um, and then we've already talked a little bit about The Whisperer and Darkness that Lovecraft publishes in 19. 31. It's set in uh, in Vermont in the United States um, and, and deals with, uh, you know, again, he references these ideas of mocking. He references the ideas of the Yeti and the works of Charles Fort, notably early on in the story. Um, but the twist in that story is that, again, they're not, um, you know, prehistoric anthropoids, but extraterrestrial arthropods in particular. Right. They're these like giant, like uh, crustacean creatures from Pluto, it turns out. Um, but uh, Lovecraft scholar Robert M. Price has pointed out that The Whisperer in Darkness is a is a really close match in terms of its overall structure to uh, Machen's The Novel of the Black Seal, right? And so you can clearly see Lovecraft kind of using The Novel of the Black Seal as the template on which he builds Whisperer of Darkness. And then the one that I, I don't talk about in the, the published version of the essay um, is is also actually uh, an earlier story by Lovecraft, uh, which is Pickman's model, which is pretty famous. And and part of the reason I didn't talk about this was because I hadn't really thought about this story um, in this way. This was a, this is a kind of a more recent discovery, but it was, um, uh, I read a, a really fascinating article in uh, the, the, the journal, the Arkham Gazette uh, by Christopher Smith Adier, where he points out that, you know, in Pickman's model, it's all about this decadent Boston painter, Richard Upton Pickman, um, who paints these, you know, really disturbingly lifelike portraits of ghouls. Um, but Adir points out that Lovecraft's ghouls don't really sound like their, their Middle Eastern namesake, and rather what they sound like are fairies, um, including notably their propensity to, quote, leave their spawn in cradles in exchange for the human babes they steal end quote. And uh, in in that story, Lovecraft actually insinuates that Pickman himself <laughs> might be uh, such a child. And he, he also connects Pickman back to Murray's witch cult in that story, because Pickman is, of course, descended from, quote, old Salem stock and had a witch ancestor hanged in 1692. Um, and, and, you know, he go he goes on. It's a really good article, in fact. But after reading that, I definitely came to the the conclusion that okay Pickman's model should be included in these discussions it's definitely Lovecraft's you know fairy it's probably actually even more so than like the little people or whisper in darkness it might be the closest Lovecraft gets to writing a fairy humorous story he just swaps out the term ghoul for fairy I guess for flavor you know excellent and um Robert E. Howard and his his use of this trope does does it vary? Do you, do you think from Lovecraft's is there some fundamental difference in how they use the concept? Well, the the fundamental difference is that um, Howard, who who was also a fan of Machen and was reading Machen, you know, 
um, well before he was corresponding with Lovecraft, right? Lovecraft doesn't introduce Howard to Mock, and he had discovered him on his own. Um, and and as I mentioned before, uh, Howard seems to have been familiar with the fairy humorist ideas from uh, possibly reading H.G. Wells. But, um, you know, he's much closer, right? I mean, he is definitely sort of in, in lockstep with Machen or Allen or, or Buchan's um, stories uh, in a more kind of direct continuity. And he writes he writes a bunch of these stories, um, uh, you know, specifically the, the Children of the Night from 1931. And then in 1932, um, he writes uh, The People of the Dark and Worms of the Earth. And uh, the difference here. Uh, really is that Mockins, uh, I'm sorry, the difference here is that Howard's stories versus like Mockins and, and Lovecraft's are uh, much more action oriented, right? So, and you, you really see this, especially in Worms of the Earth, which is part of his, um, you know, cycle of stories involving his, his pick hero, Bran MacMorn. Um, and so in that story, you have, you know, it, it takes place during the, the Roman occupation of the British Isles and the picks are kind of under the foot of the Romans and uh, and, you know, Bran MacMorn doesn't like this. And he uh, this story also ties into Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos, because three times throughout the story, Bran MacMorn swears by the black gods of Relay that he will drive <laughs> the Romans from uh, from these aisles. And to do that, he ends up basically having to enter into this sort of Faustian bargain with the little people. Um, to to and he has them take out the Romans for him, but um, like all Faustian bargains, it kind of comes with a, a horrible uh, price. Uh, that you know, at, at the end of the story, um, Brand's not sure that he he uh, would do this over again, right? That this was worth the price of of getting rid of getting rid of the Romans um, necessarily. And there's there's an earlier story by Howard, also the Lost Race from 1927. That's really the first story. That deals with this idea. It's kind of a proto Bran MacMorn story. You usually see it included in collections that focus on the Bran MacMorn cycle. Um, but one of the things that I, I wanted to point out that again I didn't get to in the published version of my essay actually is that something that I, I never see uh, talked about, including in in like um, Bob Derry's piece for the the Underwood blog, is that Howard, you know had these these sort of euhemerist ideas from the very beginning of his writing career. So the first piece of fiction that Howard ever has published, um, which is in the pages of Weird Tales, is this story from 1925 called Spear and Fang, um, which is about the, the protagonist of the story is a, is a Cro-Magnon man named Gunnor, who has to rescue uh, his love interest from uh, this gang of Neanderthals who have abducted her. And the story is, you know, largely told from Ganor's point of view and, you know, in, uh, you know, uh, kind of clan of the cave bear sort of style. But there's this one point where Howard kind of breaks in, he kind of breaks the fourth wall and sort of has to to editorialize a little bit. And it's when Ganor finally catches up with this group of Neanderthals and he sees them for the first time. Um, and, and Howard's description of the Neanderthals is is totally in this old school sort of mode where they're they're almost more like sasquatches right they're really hairy they're you know simian and and howard writes quote um of of the of the neanderthals he says he describes them as quote man apes the hairy monsters of another age who would inspire uh 
the later who would inspire later tales of loathing and horror, a horror transmitted down through the ages in tales of the ogre and goblin, the werewolf and the beast man, end quote. So, um, you know, this, so yeah, it, it, it's present, it's present in Howard's work from the beginning. It, it's very strong in there. And I really think that it's, it's perhaps more so in Howard's work than in Lovecraft's or, um, in uh in in mocking to an extent that this stuff then gets passed down and uh you know into into modern into a lot of sort of modern uh fantasy fiction uh in in particular i i think earlier we might have already mentioned uh george rr R. martin right uh with the uh, game of thrones um his his song of ice and fire series uh you know which you know i, I thought this was was interesting that um, Ferguson picks up on on this at the very end of her her thesis, but she then spends time talking about the the character of, of Tyrion, who is yes a dwarf, but Martin is very clear that he's not supposed to be a dwarf in the sort of folkloric sense. He's just supposed to be a a, a little person in our modern kind of medical understanding of what that means. But in fact, in, in the Game of Thrones novels. Um, you do have this fairy-like race that inhabits Westeros, which are known as the Children of the Forest. And it's very clear, I think, in, in reading Martin, that the Children of the Forest are the little people of of Machen and Howard and, and Lovecraft and, and Mac Ritchie. Um, and in particular, uh, you know, going back to, to Tyson's idea about the relationship between the little people and Iron, um, you know, uh, Martin writes that, um, the children of the forest were uh, the, the first men who inhabited Westeros and who were later wiped out by the second race of men who killed the first half of them with bronze blades and then finished the job with iron, um, which is interestingly enough, almost the exact same phrase that Grant Allen uses to describe that relationship in Pallinghurst Barrow. So I don't know if Mark uh, Martin's read um Alan, but I, I wouldn't put it past him. So incredible. Um, if, looking towards the end and looking to wrap up, I think I might take things into the relatively recent past and um, talk about the current state of cryptozoology with regards to this idea, in particular the discovery of Homo floresiensis, the the, the so-called hobbit, um, in Southeast Asia, and you know continuing stories about you know surviving um, short statured mystery hominoids around the world and maybe the work of Gregory Forth and that sort of thing. Yeah, so um so already I kind of alluded to this earlier, but if you go and um you know you read the works of Bernard Hovelmans, right, who's usually recognized as the father of cryptozoology alongside Ivan T. Sanderson. Um, you know, Hovelmans is a is a, you know, rabid euhemerist is the way that I would describe him. I mean you know, every mythical creature has to be based on some sort of of real animal, um, and and this extends to to fairies, right? Um, and so, in you know, Hovelman's kind of debut book uh, on the track of unknown animals, uh, he talks in in one chapter about um, you know what he describes as the disturbing, again, interesting. He uses that word, disturbing East African legend of the Agogwe or the little hairy men, uh, which he relates then to 
uh, you know, stories of elves and leprechauns, brownies, and the Newtons of Scandinavia. And he thinks that, you know, the Agagwe and these other things are, you know, were probably evidence of, um, you know, relic populations of Australopithecus or other prehistoric hominoids surviving Neanderthals. Holvelman's was big on that idea um, as well. But in, and, you know, in more recent years, right, as you said, there's, uh, you know, there's this interesting thing that happens, right, in the early, uh, you know, um, you know, in, in sort of the early uh, 2000s, uh, which is that, you know, uh, paleoanthropologists working in Indonesia, um, you know, come across uh, the fossilized remains of this, you know, race of, of you know, very small people um, uh, that they dub uh, uh, Homo florensis. Uh, and, uh, you know, initially when the fossils are found, because uh, in the Homo florensis, because they're found on the island of Flores, um, you know, there, there's some initial difficulty in kind of dating the fossils and this idea that uh, they might have been contemporaries of more sort of modern humans. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, which, which the, if I understand correctly, the sort of con, uh, modern kind of uh, a academic consensus is that, in fact, there's much more space between modern humans and, and Homo florensis than was initially thought. Um, but the one of the principal uh, paleoanthropologists on this expedition, this guy Mike Morewood, um, you know, comes up with the idea of, of nicknaming them hobbits after, you know, the, the characters in Tolkien as a way to kind of generate a lot of media attention and, and uh, therefore getting the expedition additional funding. Um, and, uh, you know, so you get these headlines about, you know, scientists discover uh, real hobbits and it's, it's a really big deal. But uh, what's what's interesting about that is, you know, Morewood says that, you know, he would later come to kind of regret that decision because, um, you know, it led into, you know, he's, he talks about, you know, um, actually it wasn't, it wasn't Morewood. It was another one of the, the guys, Peter Brown, I'm sorry. Uh, Peter Brown talks about in an interview in 2014 with Nature that, you know, he ends up receiving like you know, all of these bizarre phone calls from people claiming that they've seen little hairy uh, individuals. And and it really gets the whole Homo Florensis things really kind of gets roped into sort of modern uh, cryptozoology in, in a real way. And the, the two things that are most notable is so one of them is uh, paleontologist uh, Henry Gee, who at the time was the senior editor of Nature. Um, which for people who might not be familiar, you know, Nature is the most highly respected scientific journal uh, in the world. And, and Guy pens an editorial uh, where, um, you know, reflecting on the discovery of Homo florensis, and he says, uh, you know, quote, cryptozoology can come in from the cold, right? Because <laughs> he sees this as the discovery of Homo florensis, he writes, gives credence to ideas of like the Yeti. Um, somehow he, he's not he's not very clear about how, but he says, you know, he thinks that this gives credence to the idea of the Yeti. And then the other person who really seizes on this is um, is uh, Gregory Forth, who was uh, a pro professor of uh, anthropology at the University of Alberta. And I know he's he's retired now, but he uh, did a lot of his work in Indonesia. That was um, that was his his territory. Um, but he writes uh, an article for Anthropology Today where um, 
he he argues that you know the discovery of of Homo florensis is proof of the reality of the Indonesian version of fairies, which are called the Ibu Gogo. Um, and then he further kind of goes on to connect the Ibu Gogo and Homo florensis to things like um, uh, oh the Orang Pindek, which is this uh, uh, sort of uh, you know Sasquatch-like creature but of a much more sort of diminutive stat, uh, stature that's supposed to exist in the uh, uh, jungles of, of Indonesia, right? It means uh, um, Orang Pindek is Indonesian for short person, right? Um, and so this this all as a result, right, kind of gets, you know, uh, bundled, bundled up into this and um, really, you know, kind of uh, for, for a moment there sort of uh, reinvigorates uh, sort of uh, cryptozoology and as seen as as giving it some uh, you know some some academic clout right that it can uh, it can kind of uh, coast on and and fourth in particular has been uh, you know um, you know get, gets much more involved in cryptozoology towards the end of his his career at the University of Alberta he publishes um, you know a couple of other uh, articles in, in various uh, books, including one put out by Routledge called Anthropology and Cryptozoology, where he's looking at like cryptid cats in Indonesia. He publishes a very um, academic uh, treatise on wild man myths uh, in Indonesia, where he kind of tries, I think, his best to sort of steer away from overt sort of cryptozoological claims, but they're in there. And then uh, m most recently, as of this past summer, he's uh, published a book uh, for the the popular press um, called Between Man and Ape, where uh, he he full um, you know full he he's gone full throated sort of cryptozoologist here and is arguing that you know throughout his career he's collected so many stories so many antidotes from people uh, uh, living on on various islands in Indonesia that they've seen these these hairy men these wild men and they're not making this up this isn't just folklore that there really is something uh to this and i, I also know the most recent issue of uh 14 times 14 which times, yeah. yeah has a has an article in it by fourth where he is giving a kind of summarized version of his argument i have not had a chance to read uh that issue yet though i have it so um i did listen to over the summer he fourth went on um uh the uh the i can't remember the bigfoot and beyond which is the podcast done by um the guys who who previously did the animal planet show finding bigfoot right mm -hmm. um so that's their podcast and, and he went on there and and laid out his his argument um you know which uh you know was, was very interesting but was at least from from my perspective kind of just you know classic cryptozoology which is you know he just says you know that he thinks you know zoologists need to start treating uh antidotes as as data which i think is is a dubious proposition for all kinds of reasons but yeah tremendous uh, justin where can people find you and your work online uh so if people want, are, are interested in my work and and want to see more of it i have an academia edu page so if you just search my name justin mullis uh, and Academia EDU, uh, you'll find my page. It has a bunch of my published articles on there. I, I need to upload a couple of more um, articles 
uh, in general. I've been on a, a, a few other podcasts. Um, you know, I, I was doing an episode of uh, Monster Talk, which I'm sure listeners are probably familiar with, where I talked about uh, my research into cryptozoology in early America. I was also on the, the podcast of the uh, sadly no longer with us late cryptozoologist Scott Martis, The Haunted Sea, where I talked about that. And then, uh, you know, also, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm al- also often on a, a podcast called uh, Kaiju Transmissions. Um, which is uh, for fans of Japanese monster movies, which I am one. But the guys who run that, which are uh, good friends of mine, uh, Kyle and Matt, they often have me on when they need someone to talk about sort of the folklore or mythology aspects of uh, that, that get brought up in, in some Japanese science fiction and, and horror films. And in particular, the next episode that should be out is one that we are recording that is not about a, a Japanese science fiction film per se, um, but it's uh, Jordan Peele's recent movie, Nope. And I'm going to be talking about the mm-hmm. ufology and Fortean uh, influences on that movie. So, oh, I look forward to that. I'll put links to all of, that to all of those in the notes. And listen, this has been a topic I've been looking forward to getting stuck into for a very long time. And um, this has been more than I could have hoped for. <laughs> we covered a lot of ground. And I'm I'm really chuffed with that. So thank you very much for your time and your expertise. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I, I'm a big fan of your show. I, I love it. I love it's, you know, I, I wanted to tell you, I especially love your whole kind of mission statement, right? About analyzing this kind of stuff from a, a point of view that is critical, but not cynical, because I think that that is, you know, that's so uh, important, you know, as much as I value the work of a lot of people who, consider themselves skeptics, you know, the sort of cynicism that often gets brought to this material is something that I find, you know, often, often sort of distasteful. And, and so I really enjoy that you, you don't do that. It, it can be difficult to remain <laughs> not cynical sometimes the, the longer you do it. But um, all I'll say is you have to, you have to like it on some level. There, there are people who remain critical and remain um, skeptical studying ghost stories and ufos and all that stuff and years go by and they never find anything that they can hang their hat on that they feel is real and yet something about them the the kid in them who liked monster stories or whatever is still there and and then there are people who don't love it and i kind of wonder why they're still in the game i i have to I i don't know i don't really know what motivates them aside from some people who are genuinely worried about where it's all going you know which (laughs) i understand that too that i suppose that has to be done too yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I've never, I've never necessarily bought into this sort of, you know, um, you know, Carl Sagan demon haunted world, sort of what I see as, <laughs> as alarmism about some of this stuff, because I, I feel like these kinds of ideas have been with us throughout human history. And, you know, we've still managed to progress as a society, um, you know, and, and in fact, I, I think a lot of times we've progressed because of them it's it's not we've progressed in spite of them it's it's in part because of some of these ideas um you know that that have actually you know led to real discoveries and real things um and you know it, so it's it's more of a feature rather than rather than a flaw uh necessarily and and regardless of whether or not any of it's real you know for me that's one of the things that it always comes back to um is you know it's like well a lot of people believe this stuff is real and that belief has real effects on the world, um, you know, and, and you know, and you see, 
you see evidence of it. And so that's that alone makes it worth uh, looking at and, and makes it worth worth studying. You know, um, if you take the fact that there are people who sincerely believe in this kind of stuff um, seriously, which, again, I think some of the more cynical um, researchers and commentators don't do. They they assume if anybody says, you know, they believe in Bigfoot or they believe in UFOs or ghosts, that they're always, you know, running some sort of of hustle. Um, but I mean, I've spent enough time, I think, now as a scholar in, in religion and as interested in this kind of stuff and talking to people. It's like, no, you know, people people believe in this stuff and they believe in it sincerely. And, you know, um, you you may not agree with their beliefs, you know, but the I think the least you can do is not be condescending to them about what they believe, which I think is the same thing as being cynical a lot of times. I know what you mean. Okay, we'll wrap up there and we'll leave it so. Um, much appreciated. And uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to you again in the future. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Hi, folks. And so you find me uh, back at the hill here out somewhere sitting on a an ancient monument uh, still finishing my beer here and I have a few things to mention about that conversation and other things that have happened during the production of this episode it has been in production for quite a few weeks just with things going on in my life outside the cabin so firstly I want to uh, give a huge thanks to Justin and I want to recommend his his article Crypto Fiction, which you should be able to find through his academia site, which I will link to in the notes and below the episode. I got a chance to read it after listening and or after listening and chatting with him. And it's wonderful. It's like a back and forth between, um, you know, so-called real cryptozoology and then the way cryptozoology is described in fiction and how they cross-pollinate into one another and it's exactly the sort of thing that I and I think listeners of the show will be interested in. Lots of old friends show up in that one and quite a few new things and some new discoveries, some new things that I in particular have to go off and read. So a huge recommendation for that. I just want to quickly mention uh, we both gave recommendations to the work of Emily Fergus. I think we called her Emily Ferguson a couple of times. Um, she is, of course, Emily Fergus. Um, her article, Goblin-like Fantastic, is a really, really interesting one for people who want to know more about fairy euhemerism. And I just want to say thanks to Horace Alden Smith for sending me a coffee over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide Atlantic. So anyone else wants to do that, it's... Uh, Will I say it again? I suppose I will. It's buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide Atlantic. Um, and Horace just mentioned that he enjoyed the recent Betty and Barney Hill episode. Uh, what else do I want to say? Um, that conversation at the end was interesting to me and made me think a little bit. I was thinking about this afterwards. Am I still critical but not cynical? I, I suppose the not cynical part of me and my take on the show is that I do truly... Like, I, most of these things I would enjoy if they were real, hypothetically. It would be cool to find, you know, a large undiscovered animal. It would be cool if UFO stories were real, some of them, the less, the less creepy ones. It would be cool if there was evidence of extraterrestrial visitations. And so, I suppose when I come to these things, it is not with disgust or hatred or, you know, um, you know being negative about the, the subject you know, even though the longer I study it and the less evidence I see that is convincing, um, you know, the harder it is to, to to remain neutral or to remain, you know, not cynical. But ultimately, I suppose what keeps me there is, yes, for most of these things, 
it would be cool if they were real. However, for an example of something that I am righteously angry about at the moment, as I record this, as I said, the episode was a while in production, the whole Graham Hancock thing on Netflix is going on, and I'm very much enjoying seeing actual archaeologists rip that guy to shreds. I've been reading his books for years just out of interest. I think it's, firstly, it's, it's lazy. It's reheated 19th century Ignatius Donnelly Atlantis nonsense, and um, that has always annoyed me. There's really nothing new about it. It's really, really, really old school Victorian stuff with the merest coat of paint on it. So, so it is fundamentally lazy. Secondly, uh, it's boring. His books are incredibly boring and I read a lot of weird stuff and I really struggled with Fingerprints of the Gods and some of his old 90s stuff. Um, and lastly, I really, you know, when it comes to like, you know, alternate history or kind of, you know, pseudo-archaeology, compared to some of that other stuff I mentioned, I don't really want it to be real because I really can't get past the attitude these guys often have, their anti-science attitude. That's what grinds, grinds me massively as a scientist myself, as someone who knows that the system has flaws and has problems, but is fundamentally functional and has given us so much in the world. And the, the ingratitude of some people um, in how they conceive science to be this gigantic um, conspiracy against them personally, this gigantic martyr complex. When people get that attitude, I really lose respect for them. And, and that's the sort of stuff that I really can't stand. And at the moment, um, Hancock is doing a disastrous job of leaning into that side of things. And I really have no respect for that. And I suppose whatever you're interested in, you know, I can I can maintain some sort of respect for or open mind for as long as you're not in that camp, as long as you're not giving that disrespect to, you know, something as basic a tool as science, which is a tool and nothing else, and which provides us with, with so much, um, as imperfect as it is, it's the best tool we have for understanding the universe. It's not the only one, but it is um, one of the most important ones. And so that's just something that came into my head. Re-listening to this episode during the editing, yes, I try to keep a fair and balanced attitude, there is some stuff that I get righteously annoyed about, and maybe I don't share that enough on the show. Anyway, uh, he's being taken to shreds by some of the best commentators in the business at the moment, and uh, I do not have the expertise to to get into the archaeological side of things, so I'm not going to, and I'm going to leave it there. So hopefully you enjoyed most of the show and a little bit of a rant at the end. Uh, as always, say hi over on Twitter. I'm at Strange Ireland, or on Instagram, I am wide underscore Atlantic underscore weird and until next time stay safe and thank you for listening we are certain that satanism exists it's the practice of evil and following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object you will prove the existence of the bigfoot or sasquatch by bringing in a body